0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A vigil in Arvada for Johnny Hurley, a man police call a hero and whom police killed. Today, can training prepare law enforcement to determine quickly who's friend or foe? Then, your questions about pollinators keep flying in, how to make gardens more welcoming places for bees, butterflies, hummingbirds. Questions as well about pesticides. And the story of a Colorado philosopher who put his beliefs into practice when his wife was diagnosed with cancer.
1: So in other words, his arc, his character's arc, is from head to heart. right? And it's from teacher to
0: student. Grace and Grit was a nonfiction book first, now it's a film.
2: The success of Colorado Public Radio relies on support from active members. Members like you are necessary in order for CPR to be your source for in-depth news and music discovery. Our fiscal year ends June 30th. You can help keep this service strong and help keep funding goals on target with your gift today. Help fuel news and music on Colorado Public Radio now and in the year to come at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Morner. Two mudslides in two days. I 70 in Glenwood Canyon remains shut down this morning, and it may be a sign of things to come. The slides are also a real-time test of CDOT's efforts to keep drivers safe. Elise Thatcher is Regional Communications Manager for the Colorado Department of Transportation. Hi, Elise. Good morning, Ryan. The mudslides occurred after heavy rains hit the burn scar from last year's Grizzly Creek fire. Uh, That first slide was 70 feet wide, up to 7 feet deep. Now, CDOT couldn't prevent the slides, but my understanding is that you do have some some warning, right?
2: Absolutely. So on Sunday night, we were mobilizing to respond to a flash flood warning. And in that event, we quickly cleared the canyon, both of motorists and also uh, folks from the rec path and the rest areas if they're open at that time. And we were evacuating people from the canyon. And in the process of closing it, when the mudslide came down, we got that notification. Uh, shortly after the flash flood warning was in effect. So both of those were right around 4.30 on Sunday afternoon.
0: So that was the second slide, and there was a similar uh, sense of what was coming with the first slide?
2: Yes. On Saturday afternoon, there was a flash flood watch. So that's the less severe heads up, if you will, from NOAA, saying that there was the possibility of a flash flood event to take place. In that case, we're on standby a slide did take place, and that was on Saturday afternoon.
0: For that first slide on Saturday, uh, there were some vehicles affected, but no no injuries, no deaths, correct? Correct, yeah. yeah. Is this just the new normal in Glenwood Canyon in, in light of climate change?
2: That's a great question, and it's a big part of what we'll be monitoring and gathering information on going forward. This is new territory in the sense that we have not had a burn scar up above I-70 in Glenwood Canyon. At the same time, as many motorists know, we do have a lot of rock fall in the canyon and have over the years, including ones that have required closures for cleanup. So it's a little bit different this summer, but at the hmm. same time, it's very similar to what it's like in years past.
0: How soon do you think the canyon might reopen?
2: We are aiming for reopening eastbound lanes uh, approximately late morning this morning on Monday, and uh, we're working to remove the debris from the westbound lanes as quickly as possible.
0: I'm curious how you remove the mud and rocks. Uh, What is the equipment and how many can you kind of get into that narrow canyon?
2: Yeah, we were able to get, I think we had eight different kinds of heavy equipment working overnight on Sunday night, and they did work through the entire night. We transitioned to a new crew on Monday morning so that we've got fresh folks out there working. They were various kinds of front loaders. Our crews were able to coordinate using different pieces of equipment at the same time so that we could actually maximize the amount of kind of soupy mudslide material with small rocks. More efficiently than we had originally anticipated. So that is a big reason why we were able to clear so much from the eastbound lanes and aim to reopen this morning if at all possible.
0: So it's a kind of choreography, I hear. When I 70 is close to the canyon, the detour is rather extreme, isn't it?
2: Well, such is the nature of driving in Colorado's mountains, as so many of us know. The detour does take approximately two and a half hours longer than the normal travel through Glenwood Canyon. Um, And this is the northern detour route going from Rifle to Craig to Kremling and then back down to Silverthorne where Highway 9 reconnects with I-70. The reality is a lot of folks think they can take a shortcut uh, because that feels and looks long. They think they can take a shortcut by using Google Maps or Apple Maps to take one of the rougher roads nearer to Glenwood Canyon. We are strongly asking that drivers not use any of those suggested routes because they are truly rough roads. They're not made for regular traffic. Often they're four by four Hmm. mountain passes. And they're definitely not made for freight or commercial traffic. So be sure to stick on the alternate route. It's much better to have a, a slightly longer day than planned than to get stuck in an area with no cell service and maybe a broken axle.
0: One last thing before I let you go, Elise. I know it's been an intense weekend for you. This is an a rare section of highway where it is stacked. Is that a benefit in a way? Because you can kind of contra-lane one portion of the highway? Or is that more difficult because there's two stories to work on?
2: It's probably a little bit of both. It does help that they're separated in the sense that it makes it easier if we absolutely have to. It's easier for us to run both directions of traffic on one deck if absolutely necessary, for example, during construction last summer. And it did mean that, yes, the mud flow affected only two lanes during at least one of the slides Uh, and then, of course, affected all four during the other. At the same time, it does make, you know, some kinds of maintenance and operations challenging and, and repaving. So I would say it's probably a mix.
0: Thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you, Ryan. We appreciate it.
0: Elise Thatcher is Regional Communications Manager for the Colorado Department of Transportation meantime, Glenwood Springs is restricting outdoor water use after the mudslides to make sure its water treatment facility doesn't get overwhelmed. So watering lawns, washing cars, and filling pools is prohibited through Wednesday morning. Residents are also asked to take shorter showers and avoid running dishwashers and washing machines. Over the weekend, there was a vigil to remember Johnny Hurley, who thwarted an active shooter in Old Town, Arvada, last Monday. Loved ones sang, recited poetry, and spoke.
3: Johnny's at the Army Surplus Store because he's prepping. He knows at some point he's going to be needed. And in that moment, he just
0: springs up without question, and it is just the hero to save the day. And so I just want to make sure that we all take home today that... Inspiration to be inspired means to be in spirit, to take home his spirit with you today. He's here with us right now, and he's looking down, at us, looking up, at us, looking around from the other side. He's, he's with us all, and so you know, he would want us all to take that spirit of being the change and, and stepping up when you're needed. The details of what transpired became clearer late last week when Arvada police put out a narrative of the shooting. They say a gunman drove into Old Town, fired on veteran officer Gordon Beasley twice with a shotgun, then returned to his truck for an AR-15 and encountered Hurley, who had run out of the surplus store. Hurley shot the attacker and, while holding the suspect's gun, was killed by another Arvada cop, who mistook a good Samaritan for an assailant.
4: Mr. Hurley is a hero. He undoubtedly
0: saved many lives on Monday afternoon. That's from a video release the department put out on Friday afternoon. Memorial services for Officer Beasley are tomorrow. Today, we ask what kind of training, if any, might prevent law enforcement uh, or prepare them, that is, to determine quickly who is friend or foe. So for 32 years, Don Black served as a member of the Aurora Police Department, and he currently works as an instructor at the Police Training Academy at Aurora Community College. And Don, welcome to the program. Thank you. So this other officer arrives on the scene and sees a man with a gun. He assumes it's the attacker rather than a good Samaritan who had picked up the firearm. Do you think there's any way to have known... That, in fact, Johnny Hurley wasn't the threat.
4: No. And unfortunately, many times plainclothes police officers are shot by other officers who respond. And I'm sure it's heartbreaking for the officer who shot Mr. Hurley.
0: So you, nah, yeah, that that's uh, a lot of conviction there you have around that answer. I, I guess I think, you know, our officers trained to say, drop the weapon, um, You know, something like that before they shoot.
4: Well, uh, idealistically, that's correct. The problem is that we try to train officers to advance in situations like this from cover to cover as rapidly as they can. Now, cover does several things. That is something you get behind that will stop a bullet. Cover gives you the time to assess accurately whether or not the danger is real. Okay. Is that a gun he has in his hand? Is he turning towards me? That type of thing. The unfortunate thing is that, of course, the citizen and sometimes the plainclothes officer, in the stress they're under, doesn't realize that they need to limit their movement as much as possible. If you're in that situation and you have a gun as a citizen or a plainclothes officer, you have to make sure that you've tried to put your gun away, holster it, set it down, whatever it is, and then you have to make sure that your movements are very slow and very calculated. And so, ideally, <clears throat> you would have your you would put your hands in the air and you would not move. Now, the studies show that officers shoot people most of the time when they turn quickly, and the reason for that is that the officer oftentimes is without cover. He's advanced so close, either out of necessity or the or the idea that that he has to save somebody's life, he has to get there as quickly as possible, so he's neglected cover, or there is no cover available. So when somebody turns suddenly, he only has a split second to decide, is does he have a gun in his hand, is he trying to shoot me, uh, you're talking a split second.
1: Hmm.
4: So, now, one one thing that's not done around the country, that should have been done 80 years ago, or less, is that every police car should have a ballistic shield in it. A shield. Yes, the plastic you know, shield.
0: Let, let me uh, let me just slow this down just a bit because you've used the term "cover" several times. In other words, right. I think what I hear you saying is that it, if an officer had cover, they would be able to make those decisions that they wouldn't if they felt more vulnerable. So uh, then then you bring in the notion of a shield. That's the sort of thing you're you're talking about when you're saying cover.
4: Yes, that's right. Uh, uh, you can't always. You can't always use a ballistic shield, but I've used it many times with suspects that had guns in their hand and it gave me the luxury of not having to shoot and and time for them to realize they're going to lose this confrontation and for them to drop their gun.
0: So a ballistic shield, you're saying, would buy an officer time to make these sorts of decisions. Uh, but what I heard you say is that those are not widely used?
4: No, they're usually in a sergeant's car or a SWAT officer. Uh, Uh, unit's car, and that's too slow, okay? Each officer should have that available. Uh, The shooting here in Aurora, where the grandfather was was sadly killed, mistakenly, uh, in that case, for instance, the officers had gotten to the door with a shield in their hand, and they would have had time to assess whether or not that guy with the gun is friendly or foe, okay? So, uh, those types of things save people's lives, and unfortunately, the public looks at that as being too militaristic, but you really have a choice. Do you want to save lives or not? Can it's you? that simple.
0: I'll have you describe a ballistic shield in just a moment, but you did make reference there to that Aurora man who's a Vietnam veteran and grandfather, shot and killed by your former police department after he'd killed an intruder in his home. Police arrived on that scene and saw the homeowner, Richard Black, holding a gun and shot him. Uh, you're saying that if police responded to calls, be it a home invasion or domestic violence or active shooters, if they had shields, you think it would help in situations like that?
4: Not only would it save other people's lives, but it enables, for instance, in a school shooting, the officers to be more aggressive in their entry, and it gives them time to separate friend from foe without the the stress of knowing that I may die in a split second.
0: And do describe these shields for us, are they clear? Are they not? Uh, How big are they?
4: Well, they come in different sizes, but basically enough to cover your upper body and your head. Uh, And they generally have a viewport in them that allow you to look through the viewport. Uh, Most of them are black in color. Uh, They come either as a rifle shield or as a handgun shield. Handgun shield generally will stop handgun and shotgun rounds. So for most shootings, uh, a handgun shield will work, Um, a a rifle shield sometimes is necessary.
0: And you are saying that these are often used among SWAT teams, that they are not widely used by police forces. And I think I heard you say that part of the reason is the optics of it, uh, that there is a militaristic quality that they convey, huh?
4: That's correct. Uh, You'll see the same type... of rationale and all kinds of things like the tactical equipment that the public doesn't want the police to have, like uh, the armored vehicles, and all the other weapons, and all those things are necessary. But what you have to look at is the judgment of the leadership that, for instance, puts an armored vehicle right out in front of uh, protesters. Uh, so you have to look at the judgment of how that equipment is used.
0: So you think that there can be a middle ground here, because there are are obviously people concerned about the over militarization of police and the effect that that can have on escalating things. But you see a middle ground in the use of this sort of equipment.
4: I do. Indeed. Uh, Most of the time, uh, law enforcement has complained for a long time about the lack of leadership in law enforcement and the lack of training. And the training is grossly inadequate.
0: Just briefly before we go. Do you have any advice for civilians who carry a firearm, who see an attack going down and who are inclined to step in?
4: Well, again, if you get involved, then you have to understand that the police are going to be responding. So what you need to do is to put that weapon away to make sure that you've got your hands up and that you don't move or turn suddenly. So you stand there motionless. Police are looking for sudden movements. That's what causes the stress. He's turning on me suddenly. I have no cover. I have to make a split-second decision. shoot. So you want to eliminate that possibility by remaining motionless.
0: I want to thank you so much for your time and perspective, Donald. Sure. Donald Black, a 32-year officer of the Aurora Police Department. He's now with Aurora Community College's Police Training Academy. We talked after the shooting in Arvada last Monday that left a cop, a good Samaritan, and the attacker dead. Memorial services for Officer Gordon Beasley are tomorrow. A vigil for Johnny Hurley, who killed the attacker, took place this past weekend. The history of Trinidad on Colorado's southern border has been dominated by booms and busts since its founding in the 1860s. But an exodus of Denver creatives could mean a more stable economy in Trinidad rooted in the arts. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce takes us downtown.
5: Outside of the Trinidad Lounge... An old man who calls himself the Blind Man of God plays guitar and sings for pedestrians, wearing a ball cap covered with depictions of pot leaves and sunglasses even though it's early evening. I know what's going to happen here. I know this town is marked by the hand of God, brother. Theron Sandy followed his son here a couple years ago from North Carolina. He says he's had dreams that in Trinidad, God will restore the sight he lost as a teenager. Now inside the Trinidad Lounge, co-owner Suzanne Magnuson prepares for the night's onstage musical act, a country band stopping on the way up to Denver.
6: I've, I've always thought of a good bar as like a character in the story. And this is a character in the story of Trinidad, and we're just here to kind of bring it back to life.
5: The lounge had been shuttered for almost a decade when she bought the place last year with her husband, Kurt Wallach. They also own an alternative music venue in Denver called The High Dive. Wallach says he wants the lounge in Trinidad to have the sort of local impact he believes the high dive used to have in Denver. But those places can't touch the cultural fabric anymore. The cultural fabric of the city has gone beyond that. And I feel like that Denver outgrew us in some ways.
0: Boom, and just like that, we have started
3: another episode.
5: Up of- the street from the Trinidad Lounge, a few blocks, hang a left on Main, you'll find comedian Jay Gillespie standing in a vacant storefront, in front of a green screen, talking to a webcam. It's an improvised nightly video stream he calls Cougar Nights Live. Gillespie spent eight years working the Denver stand-up scene, then he took his act on the road. And I've sort of toured
0: all over, and at the end of the day... Anything is as good as anywhere else. You can live in L.A., bang your head against the wall, live in Denver, hit five mics a night. I live in Trinidad, and currently I'm getting the most sort of interest in what I'm doing that I've ever had.
5: Gaining traction with an online audience? Yeah, that's part of it. Though as a bigger fish in a smaller pond, he says what he's doing, it's noticed here. He's visible. And so everyone's like, oh yeah, that's Jay Gillespie. He's our comedian. Denver entrepreneur and one-time mayoral candidate Kayvon Kalitbari owns that vacant storefront Gillespie's telling the jokes in. Kalitbari's making a big financial bet on Trinidad, that smaller towns are seeing a renaissance spurred on by the COVID-19 pandemic. People taking flight from urban areas and setting up shop in these places where, you know, they're safer, they have good schools, they have cheaper home prices, cheaper cost of living. He has spent millions in the last year buying a dozen properties in and around Trinidad's historic downtown. A Denver coffee shop, a Denver pizza place, a Denver brewery. They will all be opening new Trinidad locations in his buildings within the next year. Stay on Main Street, move two blocks west of Gillespie's comedy show, and you'll find the guy facilitating a lot of this investment. My name is Wally Wallace, and I am the Economic Development Director for the city of Trinidad, Colorado. Wallace was involved for years as an event organizer in Denver, largely in the comedy scene. Friends with Jay Gillespie, Friends with Kayvon Kalitbari. At the beginning of 2019, Wallace started this new gig in Trinidad. I've just made it a point to put that out to the rest of the world that I'm not stuck in traffic. Hey, I'm paying one half of what I was paying for my house here, and I'm not renting it. I own it. I'm building equity here. He says more than 20 of his friends have packed up and moved here in the last year or two, many from Denver's South Broadway art scene, including those new owners of the Trinidad Lounge back down the street, Kurt Wallach and Suzanne Magnuson.
6: I'm hoping that as we grow down here, that we can do it in a way that's like consciously done so that we still have affordable housing. I don't want it to spiral out of control, that like everything's an Airbnb and there's nowhere that families can live.
5: It's the classic challenge faced by so many Colorado mountain towns. Word gets out, new money comes in, locals get pushed out. Economic Development Director Wally Wallace says his biggest challenge right now is trying to avoid that future. In Trinidad, Dan Boyce, CPR News. And Colorado
0: Matters continues in the next half hour with more of your Colorado Wonders questions about pollinators, from native plants to pesticides. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Paula Williams is transgender and author of As a Woman, our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's a fresh look at the gender gap. She has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy.
4: Tickets for Wednesday night's event at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. Supported by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth
0: Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. I tried, I really tried to avoid this pun, uh, but I just can't. Our recent segment about bees and other pollinators generated a lot of buzz. I'll give you a moment to cringe. Anyhow, we told you that honeybees and Colorado's native bees are at risk. Climate change is one factor. But you had more questions, and so we're going to answer them. We've invited back CSU Extension horticulture agent Lisa Mason who also leads Native Bee Watch, a citizen science program. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Ryan. Glad to see the pun didn't make you run out of the studio. Just a little cringe. Just a little cringe, a mini cringe. Okay, our first question comes from Victor Lipinski. Uh, Just a little backstory. Victor and his wife got stranded in Colorado during the pandemic, fell in love with the state. Uh, They live in Lewisburg, North Carolina, but not for much longer.
4: We've just sold our home. We're leaving here July 14th, and we're heading out west. Specifically
0: to Castle Rock. And Lipinski and his family care a lot about bees.
4: My daughter's a beekeeper, too. A newbie, you can say. And, <laughs> I, was, I, <laughs> and I was wondering, like, what can we do to help the bees? What kind of plants can we plant that would help pollinators, not only bees, but pollinators? So are there
0: drought-tolerant plants that native bees and uh, maybe even honeybees love?
7: Absolutely. There's a wide variety of beautiful flowers you can plant in your yard. Um, Bees generally go to white, yellow, and bluish-colored flowers. Hummingbirds, if you want to attract them, they're going to go for the red and the, the orange colored flowers and butterflies in general, just like brightly colored flowers. Different shapes of flowers are going to attract different pollinators. So uh, bees would need a landing platform. Uh, so penstemons are, are great. They can crawl right into the penstemons. But. Um, Blanket flowers, sunflowers; those are all great options, and they're all drought tolerant too. So you'll definitely save on your water bill.
0: Okay, this is fascinating. So clearly, there has been research as to what color flowers attract which pollinators.
7: Absolutely, and native plants are an excellent option and have a lot of those traits already built in. So native plants, you really, you really can't go wrong. Um, and all these flowers add a variety of color. You know, everyone wants a, a very aesthetically pleasing landscape. Um, native plants and drought-tolerant plants are definitely a great way to go.
0: Okay, run through that one more time for us, just because it goes by rather quickly. What colors were good for bees and what colors were good for
5: hummingbirds?
7: So so hummingbirds like red and orange-colored flowers, okay. generally. Uh, bees prefer blue, yellow, white, um, sometimes uh, other pale-colored flowers. Um, those are general guidelines another good guideline to look into are to make sure the flowers you're planting have uh, the the plant reproductive parts make sure they have the pollen and nectar sources available because horticulturists uh, we we breed plants we propagate plants and uh, in that process certain varieties the the pollen and nectar is actually bred out of the plant so oh. it doesn't have it's a be- you have a beautiful flower for the landscape but it doesn't have any of those pollen and nectar sources for the the insects. And
0: how do I check that? How do I know that when I'm choosing a native species?
7: Doing research, and and there's a lot of great plant lists out there, but also you can just look inside the flower. Look for for the anthers with the pollen on them. Uh, can be a great way. And if you're in an outdoor garden center, where are the bees visiting? Uh, That can be another good way. Look for the bees. Oh,
0: that's interesting. Uh, It's funny that you said that hummingbirds like red flowers because I think of hummingbird feeders are almost always red from what
7: I remember. That's correct. They are attracted to that reddish color. But a key also to attracting hummingbirds is a lot of the diet of hummingbirds in the summertime are other insects. So by planting nectar, flowers that have a lot of nectar, you attract insects which then attract hummingbirds okay
0: and you want people in general to avoid repetition in their garden in other words the the more variety you can have the better correct
7: variety is good small groups of the same plants can be beneficial though because when bees pollinate they transfer Pollen from uh, one plant to another plant of the same species.
0: Okay. So you don't want a monoculture in your garden, but it's okay to have pockets of similarities.
7: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Uh, We should move on perhaps to questions about pesticides. Mm -hmm. A number of listeners wrote in uh, asking about what sorts of threats pesticides pose to pollinators, and in particular, bees. I just want to remind folks that Colorado has native bees and there are hundreds of species of them. Uh, to what extent are pesticides threatening them as well?
7: Well, we know pesticides can be hazardous to bees in in, in the environment. So uh, really the best thing that it's most hazardous when they're misused. so, so if, if a homeowner or somebody is considering the use of pesticides in the landscape, knowing exactly what the pest issue that they're gonna target is is critical and also following the directions, following the label to make sure you are you're targeting the pest and not uh, you know harming any pollinators or other beneficial insects.
0: I think like the subtext of what you're saying is that when people turn to pesticides, they may do so improperly and, uh, you know, it's sort of all-out garden nuclear warfare and that it's the misuse of pesticides pesticides that I'm hearing you uh, express concerns over.
7: Yes, yes, quite often that is the case. Okay, and so,
0: I mean, some of the biggest pests in Colorado, emerald ash borer, for instance, Japanese beetles. How would Mm -hmm. you suggest people proceed fighting those uh, while at the same time protecting bee health.
7: Well, so depending on the pest issues, there's a lot of variety of options. So we, we really encourage was if someone has a pest issue to do the research, they can contact their local extension office. Um, if they contact their local extension office, we really provide the pros and cons and all control options so that that person can make the best educated decision that works for them. And so, uh, cause there's often other options available besides pesticides. So let's take um, Japanese beetle grubs in the lawn. Um, Uh, You can, grubs can't live in in moist lawns. So if you make sure the soil dries out in between lawn waterings, that can be a great way for control. So and then you've got the the whole spectrum of um, biological controls and and pesticide options. So there
0: are other options, and that's what you're imploring people to consider so that pollinator health is maintained. Yes,
7: look at all options.
0: Thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciate it.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
0: CSU Extension Agent Lisa Mason answering more of your questions about pollinators. She also leads Native Bee Watch, a citizen science program. What do you wonder about in Colorado? Send us your questions at cpr.org slash coloradowonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They'd been married just 10 days when the diagnosis came. Treya killam Wilbur had breast cancer, a battle she and her husband, Denver philosopher Ken Wilbur, would wage together until her death in 1989. Wilbur shared their love story in the book Grace and Grit, which is now a movie.
2: I love you more than life. I just can't believe it's real. I've known you less than four
3: months.
4: I've been searching for you for a hundred lifetimes. I've slain
5: a thousand dragons to find you. I love you to the depths of the ocean, beyond the height of the mountains, beyond the heat of the sun, beyond the
0: Director Sebastian Siegel adapted the story for the big screen. And Sebastian, welcome to the program.
1: It's great to be here.
0: What stood out to you about Grace and Grit, the book, uh, when you first picked it
1: up? There are so many love stories that uh, I've been putting on the screen. And oftentimes, in order to fit into the standard expectations in movies, they become conventional, and there are a lot of amazing stories that are conventional love stories. And I think this book is like no other book that I had read before in the way that it's written, first off, by two people that it essentially chronicles this woman's journals, uh, and then both he and she are authors of the book together, that you see his writing and her writing. So as a character study, and just as a reader, when you read it, you really get inside of her head and heart... And inside his head and heart, and you can see when they're melding and when they're falling for each other, and you can see when they're clashing. And so it makes for great drama.
0: It's not always easy translating the written word into a cinematic language. What were some of the challenges for you?
1: I think in terms of adapting, the book is 400 pages. And I had read prior to this, before I had any even notion of making a film around this. I just, the author's work, Ken Wilber, I'd read so many of his other books and they're all books on consciousness. And he's one of the most prolific, widely translated authors in the world. So I think in the adaptation of this book to screen, first off, just being a book, it's 400 pages. I think the duty is the, of the writers to say, well, what, you know, how do I incorporate so much of this into a script? that's going to end up being, you know, probably 120 pages or something. And we shot 117. And so the first step is how do you truncate something that's 400 pages into that? And then I think twofold on that is that because the author is so well known and his work is so influential, how do I also subtly incorporate all of his other books, in other words, his mind and his writing, his integral theory, of you know, philosophy and psychology and spirituality and transcendence. And so just as a craftsman, maybe as a cabinet maker, let's say in the adaptation process for the book itself, I broke the book down into four 100 page sections. And then I use different highlighters in order in the adaptation process to say, OK, this stays in verbatim, like these words from her journals, uh, or this stays in, but it comes at a different spot in the movie in the script or this stays in but it only stays in um metaphorically let's say visually but it's not told let's say in the plot so that was the first step of it and then the second step is then in the writing process when I took it to screenplay was to incorporate the author's work so in other words to have him uh, articulate things whether in his actions or in his dialogue things that suddenly infused his work into the restaurant. And I thought that was somewhat of a challenge, but because I was very familiar with his work and simpatico with him, uh, it was an enjoyable challenge. I liked it very, very much.
0: It makes me think of, I love the highlighter example, by the way. I'm so glad you said that because I can picture just this kind of rainbow technicolor page that must uh, emerge after that
1: but your description you're, you're right uh, <laughs> you're right the, my copy is definitely looks like technical it's just scribble all through it for sure
0: your description of weaving in Ken Wilber's philosophical prowess uh, makes me think of a scene where I believe he's reading one of his works to his wife Treya she's going through a really difficult struggle with cancer in this scene
4: I have a body but I am not my body my body may be tired or excited, sick or healthy, anxious or calm. But that has nothing to do with my inward eye. I have emotions, but I am not my emotions. Emotions pass through me.
6: Oh, it really helps. It just doesn't last. I feel like I'm crawling out of my skin.
0: One impression I had watching the movie, Sebastian, is that it indeed highlights a lot of Ken Wilber's philosophy and his just his prolific nature. I mean, there are mentions of his many books. I was Mm -hmm. less clear on why he falls in love with Treya, uh, what her qualities are that he is so attracted to. What's your take
1: on that? Oh, It's a great question. And I want to come back also to that scene after that. Uh, That's a very important scene. The scene's been discussed, yeah, by a number of different people, particularly a critic. So I would like to cover that scene. But, uh, in terms of him falling for her, this guy, right. In his thirties, when they meet is already referred to as the Einstein of consciousness. He's written all these books on the psychology of God, if you will, right. On, on consciousness evolution. And, uh, He meets this woman who, through his service to her, has to essentially ground all of this brilliance into action. So in other words, his passage in the book, his arc, his character's arc, is from head to heart, right? And it's from teacher to student in so many ways, right? So I think that he falls for her because he tastes something that is prior to that, that he cannot put on the page, right, necessarily uh, with science or with philosophy or with psychology. Mm. And I think that is why there are so many books about love and so many paintings about love and so many movies and so many poems and so many songs. And we keep creating them because we always have to speak them anew in all the ways that we find them. And I think in terms of that scene you brought up, it's such a beautiful scene because I remember when I read that in the book, that's directly verbatim, from this woman's journals that she was not feeling well. And she said, will you, you know, my lover, will you read this to me? And there was a critic who had been very critical about that scene. She was saying that, uh, that she would have smacked him in the head if he had ever done that, if that was her lover, the critic had said that. And that's fine, that's her opinion. Everyone can have their opinion. However, this is what this woman actually asked for. This is direct from her journals. And then moreover, when he read that, when he read that verse, and he read this verse about you are not your, your body, you are not your emotions, your emotions pass through you, he's not actually quoting his own work. He's reading a piece from No Boundary, which is one of his earlier works that he wrote. But in that passage in No Boundary that he reads, it's actually quoting Ramana Maharshi, who's one of the most prolific writers. So I, that's become a very beautiful passage for a lot of people in a number of different practices.
0: Well, Sebastian, thank you so much for being with us.
1: I really enjoyed the interview. Thanks for the great questions, and um, it's really fun to be with you guys.
0: Sebastian Siegel's new film is Grace and Grit, based on the book of the same name by Denver philosopher Ken Wilber. The movie is on demand and in select theaters. Some of the people hardest hit by the pandemic shutdown are those in the country illegally. CPR's Andrew Kenny shares one woman's experience and the larger issues it reveals.
3: A lot of people talk about the before times, before the pandemic, before things changed. That feeling is especially visceral for
8: Susanna. Yes, before I was living like in a dream. I had work, I was paid well, I was getting a lot of tips, but now I live with fear.
3: Susanna is speaking through an interpreter. She's 53 and lives in Eagle County, where she's worked for nearly 20 years as a hotel housekeeper. We're not using her last name because she's an undocumented immigrant and she fears deportation. That's always hung over her head. But in recent years, life had started to feel sustainable.
8: We were going in vacation. I had the money to pay the rent, to pay the bills, and to support my son, who is 16 years old. And I never had the need to ask for money.
3: Her job disappeared just days after the first COVID-19 case was confirmed in Colorado.
8: It went really, really fast.
3: The state's economy was shutting down, and it was especially pronounced in the high-country service jobs that rely heavily on immigrants. Hundreds of thousands of people filed for unemployment benefits across Colorado. Susana wasn't one of them. She isn't eligible for unemployment.
8: I was really worried and really scared because I didn't have money to pay the rent, I didn't have money to pay the food.
3: There may be about 100,000 undocumented workers in Colorado, according to the progressive leaning Colorado Fiscal Institute. Many, like Susana, pay taxes and fees to the government, and their employers are estimated to pay more than $10 million per year into the unemployment program on their behalf.
8: I was feeling bad because I had paid taxes for so many years, and uh, and the government was supposed to help me and all the immigrants, but it didn't.
3: Susana had no choice but to spend the money that she'd saved for
8: years. I was lucky that I had some savings. And uh, that's not very common because uh, many people that um, do not have the opportunity to have savings. But th- those savings, they allow me to leave for the first three or four months of the pandemic. And then uh, I just, uh, when the money ended, I just started to, it drove me crazy.
3: Eventually, some help did materialize. Susanna was grateful to get money from a nonprofit to pay some of her rent and avoid an eviction. But that program offered just a fraction of what unemployment would have paid.
6: There's no safety net um, for them. And and I would say yes. Like, I think those are probably similar um, stories that we've heard across our state.
3: That's Representative Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez. She's one of the Democratic state lawmakers who worked on a package of reforms this year meant to create a state safety net for people who are undocumented. They sent millions of dollars of stimulus funding to something called the Left Behind Workers Fund, a privately operated program that helped laid off workers like Susana. They also passed a bill to allow undocumented people to get professional licenses and apply for certain state-funded benefits.
6: Like, at least since... I've been there. It's the most we've ever been able to do. We didn't think we'd be able to do that many.
3: But Democratic lawmakers didn't pass one major initiative. It would have created a permanent unemployment benefits program for people like Susana. She was really hoping for the change. She's a member of the Colorado People's Alliance, one of the main groups pushing for it.
8: And uh, the fact that we've been excluded from that, it makes us feel like uh, criminals.
3: The Colorado Chamber of Commerce argued against the proposal, saying that it would add to the sharp increase in unemployment costs that businesses are already facing. Republicans said that they wanted to focus on delivering benefits to the people who already qualified, and that they didn't want to make Colorado more attractive for undocumented people. Ultimately, the sponsors decided to study the idea and publish a report this fall. Susana and other advocates for undocumented immigrants say that the change still needs to happen.
8: We have really to uh, make sure the government can see us. We have to make ourselves visible because uh, they have to understand that we are contributing to the economy of the country and uh, that we need to be included.
3: She hopes to reach solid financial ground soon, but now that she's been reminded how precarious her life really is, she wants to make sure things are different next time. I'm Andrew
0: Kenny, CPR News. To remember those who've lost their lives to COVID, NPR has been sharing the music they loved. One tribute was for Frank Nguyen of Aurora, who died in November. He was 40. Here's his younger sister, Kim Nguyen.
6: Growing up, my brother and I were very close. As children, we bickered, but he was always there for me. As I think about my brother, Frank, and just reminisce about my memories of him, um, a lot of it is centered around music. He and I, growing up when we were in high school, we would drive around in his car, and he always had something playing at full blast. And a lot of it was electronic music, but in particular, Depeche Mode time Ultra came out and he just ate it and I think that was uh, a very, very pivotal time in his life when that album came out and it hit so many notes for him. I think that my brother was definitely the type of person that when he was passionate about something, he wanted to share it with everybody that he could. I remember a few years back, there was a karaoke party. It was a busy karaoke bar in downtown Denver. And the first song that he performed was Walking In My Shoes by Depeche Mode. He did not care what the crowd was feeling. He just wanted to do that song. As a little sister, watching my older brother go up and perform, that was a funny thing to see. Uh, A little embarrassing, too. A couple of days after he had passed away, I remember just having a few moments to myself, and I had... My music streaming just on random songs and Depeche Mode's home came up. And you know, the the song has this big orchestral wind up to the chorus where it says, And I thank you for bringing me here, for showing me home. For singing these tears. Finally, I found that I belong here. transported me back to those high school years, being in the car, listening to the song at full blast. And I felt like it was my brother talking to me. And I felt like it was his way of sending a message and just trying to figure out where I go from here, where my family goes from here, and what we do to honor his life and legacy. That song helped me because it felt like a message. Him letting us know that things were going to be okay, or at least he was okay.
0: Kim Nguyen of Aurora, remembering her brother Frank, who died of COVID 19. The tribute is part of NPR's Songs of Remembrance. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks, as always, to our team Carl Bielek, Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle
2: Fulcher.
3: Matt Hers. Michael Hughes.
2: Carla Jimenez.
8: Avery Lill.
0: Pedro Lumbrano.
8: Patrice Mondragon.
0: Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Monica Castillo. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Finally, have found it. I